chapter 27. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 834. We're going to begin uh, the reading at verse 27 this morning. Uh, This is uh, the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, rather than focusing on the triumphal entry and the events of that Palm Sunday, so to speak, I am looking forward now to the events of Friday of that week, to the crucifixion of Jesus, that we might have this as our meditation throughout this week of Holy Week and Passion Week. So let us ask the Lord to bless now the reading of his Holy Word. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the mystery of the gospel, that in your great love for us, you sent your Son to be the Lamb of God, to bear your wrath against our sins, that we might be set free from the slavery of sin and the tyranny of the devil in order to live new lives as your holy, redeemed people. We pray, O Lord, that you will now bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you will give us minds to understand spiritually, hearts to receive in faith, and souls to respond joyfully to the word of truth, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 27, the the context follows Jesus' trial before Pilate. Verse 26 says that Pilate released Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, that is, submitted him to the Roman whip, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27 Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is Palm Sunday, commemorating the day Jesus entered Jerusalem. But we know from the events of Good Friday that the cross of Christ is at the very heart, the very center of true Christian faith. And therefore, the universal symbol of Christianity is the cross. How odd. How odd. How odd that an instrument of cruel and unusual punishment would be the symbol of love, grace, mercy, and peace. The cross, a mechanism of torture in the pagan world. Crucifixion was the Roman way of disposing with the criminal trash of the empire. Roman citizens could not be crucified. The cross was reserved for the dregs of society, the worst of convicts, gypsy thieves, runaway slaves, revolutionary terrorists. And Jesus was considered to be one of them. Just as the prophet Isaiah had spoken of the suffering Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, numbered among the transgressors. Matthew tells us that Pilate, hoping to prevent a riot from breaking out, had Jesus scourged, submitted him to the Roman whip, flogging and flaying, before handing him over to be crucified. And New Testament scholar William Hendrickson gives us some idea of what took place. The scholar writes, The Roman scourge, the whip, consisted of a short wooden handle to which several thongs were attached, 
the ends of which were equipped with pieces of lead or brass and with sharply pointed bits of bone. The stripes, the lashes, were laid especially on the victim's back, bared and bent. The body was at times torn and lacerated to such an extent that deep-seated veins and arteries and sometimes even entrails and organs were exposed. Such flogging, from which Roman citizens were exempt, often resulted in death, or it preceded execution and was ordered as a sign to indicate that the person to whom it was administered was about to be crucified. Think of it. The mystery of the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And it came to this. The word became flesh and bared his back to the Roman scourge. Those Roman soldiers had no idea of what was taking place as they flogged and flayed Jesus. But something which transcended that horrible moment in time, something which transcended and reached out over the boundaries of history and geography was taking place. Yes, there was more to Jesus' suffering than what met the eye that day. There was more than human cruelty at play. Human cruelty was at play, yes, but more. The eternal counsel of God, the mystery of the gospel was being fulfilled. For as Isaiah the prophet had spoken more than 700 years before, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his stripes we are healed. What was taking place in that horrible moment was the suffering of the sinless Savior, in your place, for your salvation. His wounding for your eternal healing. Then there was the crown of thorns. These were thorns like spikes. Thorns that would not break. Thorns that would not bend. When crammed down onto Jesus' and into Jesus' forehead. But why? What did it mean? Something which transcended that moment in history was taking place. Something which transcended, which reached out over, above, beyond time and space. Over, beyond, above the sarcastic mockery of the Roman soldiers. Think of it. See it. The crown of thorns on the head of Jesus. A crown of thorns. Not a crown of gold, not a crown of glory, a crown of thorns, the crown of the curse. This was Adam's crown, the crown of the curse, the curse of thorns which fell upon creation when the first Adam sinned against the Creator. But you see, Jesus, the true Adam, 
The faithful Adam, the righteous Adam, the sinless Adam, the last Adam, as the Apostle Paul calls him. Jesus took the place of the first Adam. Jesus took our place under the curse. Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's curse is our curse. Adam's crown is our crown. The crown of original sin. The crown of fallen humanity. The crown of the curse under the condemnation of the Creator. But Jesus took the curse off of our heads and put it on His own. He wore the crown of the curse to redeem us from the curse of our sin. So that we might wear the crown of His righteousness. The crown of His glory. The crown of His life eternal, which He freely gives to those who look to Him in faith for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, what happened on that day transcended time, space, history, geography. What happened on that day happened for you and for your salvation. He came to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. They threw a purple robe around Him, a mockery of the royal robe a king should wear. Hail, King of the Jews! They jeered with cruel derision. They crowned Him as a king. They cloaked Him as a king. They hailed Him as a king. Not as a king of power and glory, but as a king of suffering and shame. Not as a king who would reign from an earthly throne, but a king who would be enthroned upon a cross to die. They had no idea of what they were doing or of what was taking place. They had no idea of the kingdom which would come through this king who died on a cross. And Jesus, beaten, battered, bruised, bleeding, was led out of Jerusalem to be crucified. He was led out, in the words of Isaiah, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And there outside the city walls, outside the camp, because Old Testament law required that the sacrifice of atonement be disposed of outside the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem. There they crucified him on a hill called Golgotha. That's Hebrew. Translated, it means the place of a skull. Now, was it called the place of a skull because... There is a hill outside Jerusalem that actually looks like a skull, a hill with caves in it in just the right place that look like empty eye sockets. If you've been there, you've probably seen it. Or was it called the place of the skull simply because it was literally littered with skulls bleached white by the sun Silently screaming the horror of their death. There they crucified him. Two others with him. Jesus in the center. Can you see the three crosses on that skull? Jesus in the center as though he were the leader. The worst of all. The most guilty. 
as prophesied by Isaiah, he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was crucified in between two despicable criminals so that we might trust and believe, so that we might know and be assured that he, the holy son of God, the sinless, spotless lamb of God has come all the way down, all the way down, all the way down to the very depths of human depravity and has taken our place on the cross. And His death on the cross is fully sufficient, infinitely sufficient to atone for the crime of each and every one of all of your sins. Though every sin is potentially deadly and every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven and cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven and cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ for those who look to Him in faith. There is no sinner too low, no sinner too far gone for Jesus Christ. If that person turns in faith to Jesus and seeks His mercy, and in fact... Luke tells us that at one point, one of the thieves turned to Jesus in repentance, in faith, and said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him in that moment, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But there at the foot of the cross, the soldiers took Jesus' clothing and cast lots for it, dividing it among themselves, again in fulfillment of prophecy which had been spoken of the Messiah. But listen to John Calvin's comment here. Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory Before the judgment seat of God. Christ was stripped of his garments. That he might clothe us with righteousness. Now see this. See Jesus. Stripped. Naked. Naked on the cross. Naked under condemnation. See the nakedness of your Savior for your salvation. Do you see? Do you see? The nakedness of Adam. You remember? After Adam sinned against God, his nakedness was corrupted. His nakedness, which had been a sign of his innocence, after his sin became a sign of his guilt and his shame, his vulnerability before God, his accountability to God, the nakedness of his alienation from God, Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's nakedness is our nakedness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stripped of His glory, hanging in nakedness and shame, accursed and exposed to the righteous wrath of the Creator. Jesus took Adam's place and yours and mine on the cross. So that our nakedness might be clothed with his royal robe of righteousness. Our shame covered by his love.
You see, something which transcended the bounds of human history and geography, which transcended time and space, something which overruled the wickedness of human sin was taking place. What happened on the cross of Christ happened for you. What happened on the cross of Christ happened for you. At the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with the cry of Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of hell. Jesus' physical torments on the cross were terrible indeed, but not nearly so terrible as the spiritual torment of being forsaken by the Father. Yet this is what Jesus suffered for our salvation, the hell of forsakenness by God. He suffered rejection by the Father. He was cut off. He was cast off. That is hell. Jesus himself became the human embodiment of the sin of the world. And as such, he was cast out and cut off. In the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into hell and the, the hell of being cast off, cast away from the Father's love. In the hell of being forsaken by God the Father, Jesus took upon himself and experienced the hell of the wrath of God against the sin of the world. The wrath of God against your sin and mine. And he has descended into the hell of condemnation which we deserved. Where there is nothing but forsakenness and despair. John Calvin commented, because he was forsaken for a time. You who trust in Christ will not be forsaken. Not a moment. And so the scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Christ himself on the cross suffered our condemnation for us. If the punishment for your sin has already been executed upon the cross. There is no more punishment. To be executed against you. This is the reason. That you must find yourself. In Christ. Through faith. What happened to Christ on the cross. Happened. For you. Finally, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. But this was not the moment of defeat. This was the moment of victory yet to be revealed. On the cross, something which transcended that horrible moment in time, something which transcended, reached out over and above the bounds of history, geography, was taking place. The death of Christ on the cross was the death of death for all who trust in him. The death of Christ on the cross was the death of death for all who trust in Him. The Son of God died your death to destroy your death. Now think of this. Think of what happened on the cross. I never tire of making this point. Our good friends from Virginia heard me ask this question 
over and over again from the pulpit, you will hear me, God willing, ask this question over and over again. Here it is. Can God die? Can God die? Can the immortal, invisible, almighty, eternal God die? No, God cannot die, but could God become a man? Would God become a man? That is the question which distinguishes Christian faith from all world religions. That's it. Could God become a man? Would God become a man? Could God, would God become a man who could die a human death? Could God become a man? And if he did, could that man die a human death? Could God become a man who could die a human death? The gospel of Jesus Christ says, yes, the immortal, invisible, eternal, holy one who cannot die became a man of flesh and blood and bone and breath who could and would and did die a human death to pay the price of human sin in the place of sinners who deserved eternal condemnation. There it is. That's it. In Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, blood, and bone. In Jesus Christ, the immortal, eternal God who cannot die has, in fact, descended into the depths of human death. He has experienced it, he has endured it, and he has conquered it. The eternal God himself in this man, Jesus Christ, has plunged himself into the darkness, into the abyss. He has swallowed up human death in the depths of his own infinite, eternal being, and he has overcome it by the power of his Infinite, eternal life. He has swallowed up death and He has spit it out. He has turned death inside out and upside down. He has been there. He has done that. And He has undone death for you. He has invaded death's domain and defeated it to set you free. Again, I quote Calvin. The death of Christ is our confident hope of life and our fearless triumph over death because the Son of God has endured it in our stead and has been victorious. The death of Christ is our confident hope of life and our fearless triumph over death because the Son of God has endured it in our stead and has been victorious. It's true. What happened on the cross happened 
for you. Something which transcended time, space, history, geography. Something which overruled the wickedness of cruel, sinful man took place on the cross that day. And in union with Christ through faith, in union with Christ through faith by the working of the Holy Spirit, you died with Him on the cross. That means that in union with Christ through faith, you have died. Your death is behind you. And there's nothing in front of you but life, eternal, by the power of the risen Savior. To be a Christian is to know in your soul that you have peace with God now and for all eternity. Only because Jesus Christ died on the cross because of you, instead of you, and for you. The cross of Christ is at the heart of true Christian faith. And therefore, the cross of Christ is in the heart of the true Christian. Jesus Christ is your only salvation. No one else has done for you what he has done, and no one else ever will. But he has done everything, everything for you. That is the reason that you and I, every day of our lives, must cling to the cross of Jesus. I know all too well what it is to be weighed down by the burden of sin. I know what it's like to look at my life and see all the stupid, selfish, sinful, hurtful things I have done. To feel the pang of regret, shame, and guilt, and to be overwhelmed with a sense of my own failure and my own filth. I know what that's like. I know what it's like not to be able to turn back the hands of time and undo what I have done. Or to do what I should have done but didn't. I know what it's like to know that I cannot save myself. And I know that there is only one way to deal with the reality of my sin, the reality of my brokenness, the reality of my unworthiness. And that is to deal with it the only way God has said to deal with it. The only way God has graciously provided. To run to Jesus as fast as I can. To throw myself at the foot of the cross. To cast my soul on the sovereign, saving grace of God and to cry out in faith, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What happened on the cross happened for you. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for the wonders of your love, your rich mercy, your amazing grace, and your sovereign power through your Son, Jesus Christ, who for our sake and our salvation bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We pray that your Spirit will apply your word, the word of life, to our hearts and to our minds. So that we might live even now as those who have died in Christ and have been raised with him by the power of your spirit. To live even now on earth as citizens of heaven.
to the glory of your name. Amen.